0: excited to be back with another guest and as you know the guest introduces himself so please go ahead sure i'm, I'm mike
1: procopio from the procopio companies we're a boston-based uh multi-family developer and it's uh, it's awesome to be on
0: and it's your company
1: it is so i'm uh, so it's a family business i'm i'm third uh i'm third generation so my grandfather started the business in 1950 so pushing on close to 75 years in this business and basically have done every asset class in, in real estate, every product type, every cycle, you know, a lot of, a lot of ups and downs and recessions. So we've, we've been there and we've done it, but yeah, it's, it's, it's our, it's our company. I'm, I'm in business with my three brothers and, and my dad is still in, involved a little bit.
0: Cool. I, I, you know, the stereotypes are that family businesses can be tricky um, but <laughs> going on three generations, I won't ask if it's working, but it, it, it seems like it's working. It's, but it's, from the, from the outside, it, I could tell from what I could tell you guys are involved in a lot of different verticals and aspects of the real estate business. And I'm guessing that that is a competitive advantage. Um, and I'd be curious, what, what verticals are you involved in and how has that helped each part of your business?
1: Yeah. So we're, we're, you know, we identify at our core as a developer, um, primarily a multifamily developer, although we do do a little bit of other, other stuff. Um, and, and in that vertical we'll do full cycle development, um, You know, merchant build business plans, long term holds, we have an opportunity zone fund in house, um, and we'll do roughly 300 to 350 million a year in that in that vertical in that bucket. We then have an in house construction management firm, our genesis is actually as builders, we came out of the construction industry. Um, So we'll do, uh, we'll build about 20% of what we develop in house. Um, So we have that vertical as well. That's a complete professional construction management firm we build for ourselves. We occasionally will build for other developers. Um, And that's a value add to the projects because we're able to build leaner. We're able to build quicker. We're able to tackle projects that have a lot more hair on them because we're able to control kind of more aspects of the deal because we have that vertical. And then we also self-perform site work as well. So uh, the way that works is is uh, we have our own iron, we have our own site work crews. Uh, the way we view development is that, you know, uh, 80% of the risk, the cost risk is in the dirt. Uh, we're able to then de-risk that by by controlling that aspect of it. And we approach that as the more hair on the site work package, the worse the environmental, the more complex, the more unique niche uh, aspects of the site work package, the better for us. We'll we'll tackle that in-house. And if it's a really simple package, we'll just hire someone else to do it. But if it needs a seawall or revetments or pile driving or major environmental remediation, we're going to try and tackle that in-house because then we can, we can basically cut that site work package probably in half. And it, it ends up being very accretive to our investors between the site work vertical and the construction management vertical. We're really controlling the full cycle. We used to do Property management in-house, we've since gotten rid of that. That's a very challenging vertical to do in-house unless you have like close to 10,000 units, which we don't do. We're, we're merchant build guys. So we've since gotten rid of that. However, we take a very heavy hand in that management process with our, with our partners. But those are our three big verticals is, is the development piece the uh, the construction management piece and then and then the site work piece we do have a brokerage arm it's just not it's not significant
0: kind of so interesting so you you outs you have a third party that's doing your management now but now so yeah. let's dive into development a little bit um, is this regionally is this locally
1: yeah so we're we're basically right now in every state in New England except for Vermont uh, and then we're pushing into the Research Triangle in North Carolina so we've got some boots on the ground down there we've been spending a lot of time in Raleigh Durham. Chapel Hill, Wake Forest, Cary, kind of all those uh, hot markets there around the triangle. Um, and we have spent a bunch of time on the ground in some other Sunbelt markets, Florida, Texas, Alabama, kind of the usual suspects. We haven't bit down on anything there, um, but we, we like the yield there. We're, we're essentially having to, having to push out of the Northeast for yield. Uh, It's becoming very, very challenging with construction costs here, union pressures here, affordable housing pressures here. It's becoming very, very challenging to maintain any sort of reasonable yield for our investor pool or ourselves, for that matter. Um, So that's that's the push into the other markets. um, And so far with with some success. And, what you know, for for 70 years, it's been hyper regional, right? Like Eastern Massachusetts. It's only even it's only even in the past three years that we've gone to other states at all.
0: And what what when you are developing, is there a. like a sweet spot in terms of the number of units that you're developing in, in one project? Yeah,
1: so we, we'll do, right now we have, you know our smallest project is 30 units, but it's super high-end, hyper luxury, super good community, right? It's kind of its, kind of its, own, its own world. Um, our sweet spot is probably 200 units. Um, when we're looking at new projects right now, we're looking at stuff that's 250 to 450. Um, that's really where we want to be. Although we, you know, we have projects we're underwriting right now. There are a thousand units, you know, multi-phase master plan stuff. So that's our sweet spot is the bigger stuff. Um, We have a good pool of institutional partners that we bring in on the capital side for that kind of stuff. Um, You know, right now we have 10 active projects going. uh, And I would say the average size of those is probably 175 units.
0: So as a, I work for an owner operator. And so we, we do the management. And, and yes, it is, it is, it's a, a challenge and a good challenge that I, I enjoy. Um, we've, you know, as we've grown, we've been looking for larger assets because they're, they're easier to, you know, it, you cannot correct exactly. So, so, you know, first it was, you know, 300. Now we're looking at 400. You know, we do even have one that's 500. Um, we're developing one that's over 500. So, you know, I do think that there are some niche companies that, and, and I think the big institutional companies also are looking for larger assets. And so some people find this niche where they're buying these smaller assets, you know, under 300 or even under 200. Um, as a, so I would think that you would have a lot more interest in people buying if you were developing properties that are bigger because of they're right. more attractive.
1: Yeah, so our, our sweet spot on the sale is definitely 250. That's, that's the spot we want to be at on the sale because you can capture the smaller funds um, and you can capture the pure institutional players as well. Um, When you get bigger than that, you're only in the institutional world uh, because of the size of the equity checks. So that actually we found can be somewhat limiting when we get into the 500 unit project sizes. Right. You're talking 200 in in our markets in the northeast. You're talking 200, 300 million dollar projects. So the equity checks are so big that you're limiting the buyer pool to the pure institutional players. Probably 250 is where we like to be on the exit. That said, Boston in particular is a super unique market where the small assets trade to local buyers and local family offices at the same, uh, basically the same metrics that the big stuff trades at. We're selling 146. We sold yesterday, 146 unit project, Boston MSA, um, urban suburb, uh, but a downtown walkable project, 3.6, right? In an environment where that, I mean, that's essentially probably negative leverage right now with where rates are at. So, right, that, that's really unique, I think, the way Boston, the Boston market works for those smaller. Asset sizes.
0: What is that per door?
1: Four sixty.
0: That's nuts.
1: Four sixty a door. Yeah.
0: Um, but so, so when you're looking to sell, you're saying two fifty. Yeah. Um, but if you're going to hold on to it, so then you'll you'll do something smaller. And I guess the efficiency of management is not your issue because you're hiring someone to do it.
1: Correct. And if we're holding on to it, we're also if we're going to hold it, we're probably going to hold it in one of our OZ funds. So that's going to limit us to the OZ projects. We also can do smaller projects there because the, we're not as focused on the yield. Right. In terms of cash flow, the projects don't have to be as efficient because what the play on the opportunity zone stuff is, is the tax benefits in year 10. Right. We want the step up in basis. So we're able to look at that and model it and say, hey, look, we'll take no cash flow in years one through three. That's okay with us. It's not about the cash flow. It's about sheltering 10 million dollars in gains and then taking out 30 million dollars in year 10 tax free. Right. That's the that's the play. So the bulk of our holds are the O.Z. O.Z. projects that we do.
0: Got it. So I, I don't know a lot about OZ, um, and the tax benefits, but I would, I think hopefully everybody has moments in their career where they learn something in an aha moment that becomes a game changer for them. It's almost like you turn on the lights and it's like, Oh, oh, I didn't realize that this is here and I could do this. Um, what were, what were one or two examples of like, Oh, you, maybe it's OZ zones or learning something that had a, a, a huge, impact on how you operated or you started approaching new deals because of yeah, those that's that's a
1: great that's a great question because so so for me we came out of our core business we did a bunch of different asset classes over 70 years 65 years before I was running the business right and uh, the vast majority of that was high-end single family large scale subdivision sales and when you come out of the single family world you're super constrained by the availability of debt, you're super constrained by customers, you're super constrained by your capacity of how many you can build at a time because they're very labor intensive. I would say that the big aha moment for me, I went from building single family houses to building uh, a high, an urban type one high rise, uh, 250,000 square foot project from single family houses. So for me, the aha moment was, looking at those projects and actually understanding that they were easier, easier to get them capitalized, easier to get them banked, easier to sell them, and actually, in a lot of ways, easier to build them than the single families. That was a major aha moment for me, right? It would, you know, self-help people talk about your own, your limiting beliefs. And I think a lot of us have those limiting beliefs in our careers where we're thinking, I can only do single families, or I can only do three families, or I can do triple deckers, or I'll never build anything more than a 10 unit project. The reality is the amount of brain damage that goes into building a ten unit project. Is probably about the exact same as a, as building a 300 unit project, right? And when you start, to, when that starts to click in your brain, and you start to realize you can do that, then the sky's the limit because there's no project we're going to be afraid to tackle right now um, because of that. Once you understand that, I think opportunity zones are another big one, right? When you understand, really have a fundamental understanding of how taxes work in real estate. Um, and really, can wrap your head around how how in a lot of ways not to pay taxes in real estate. There's a lot a lot of potential there, um, and a lot of people just plow through this business and they do it and they do okay, they do well, they earn a good living, but they pay a lot of taxes that they don't have to pay. Um, I'm not a big 1031 guy. We don't do a lot of them because they're so they're so restrictive, but we do a ton of the opportunity zone stuff. Um, it's like a 1031 without the handcuffs. Um, they just have to be in special census tracts and and that came in in the tax cuts and jobs act with president trump and it's just a huge huge tool uh for generational wealth and that that's been a big aha moment for us as well
0: i think a lot of people who get into this game you know they start with smaller and then you know they grow it's a single family then it's a duplex a fourplex and and up from there and a lot of times like the information they have is just whatever they faced along their their path and a lot of their information could be coming from brokers. And so they, they, they take that and they don't actually learn to question that or explore new things. Um, you know, I've experienced a lot of where like, you know, this is the way it is. And I wanted to understand it more. And the more I dove into it and understood it, I was like, Hey, if we make this little shift, it's going to have this huge impact. And, um, and, and, and it's fun. It becomes a challenge. Like where else can we find ways to understand things differently or better and adjust based on that?
1: I think one of the things that I find interesting is you position a lot of your stuff around your curiosity in multifamily, right? And and I think that's a really, really impactful point to think about. People lack curiosity, right? And what that does is that really, it really, it shrinks their world, right? To what they're, not only what they're able to achieve, what they're able to do, but what they're able to see and what they're able to envision. Um, When you're able to embrace that curiosity and ask why, right? One of our core values at Procopio is there's rarely one right answer. I don't ever want to be told that this is the only way it can be done. I don't believe that, right? So we want people to be curious. And really, I, the, the mental shift for people that are willing to embrace that curiosity and kind of go after it and really want to find out the why, uh, I think is, is impactful. It really moves the needle, you know, more than one degree at a time.
0: Yeah, I, I'm, I'm working on a, a LinkedIn post where it's, it's, I actually document my whole week and ask myself why each thing I do. Yeah, <laughs> And then, and then, you know, go through that exercise. But, uh, but yeah, that exercise is wondering. And, and it's, it's in all areas in life. You know, someone could be, have a great relationship, but not really understand what makes that relationship good. They could be a good parent, but not even stop to think about what makes somebody a good parent and yeah. what makes good relationships. And yeah, curiosity definitely drives me. So, um, we wrap up, um, and to continue the curiosity of, of random questions, cause you never know what you might learn from somebody. Um, you shared that you're, you're a, bu- a big book reader. So a few book recommendations.
1: Uh, okay, so I'll give you, yeah, I am a big book reader. I, I try to get 80 to 100 done in a year, which, which gives my wife anxiety. Um, but uh, I would say over the past uh, year, some of the most impact, two of the most impactful, I'll give you uh, Ben Horowitz's book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things uh, is really, really impactful. Uh, it breaks down kind of how we approach things and how we approach life. Really, really, really great read. Uh, and then there's a book uh, called Thou Shall Prosper, uh, by Rabbi Daniel Lappin, uh, it's fantastic, fantastic book uh, dissecting the way society views money and profit, and really reinforcing the inherent moral value that business brings to society in a world that has devalued business and decided that profit is immoral and, and business is doing business is immoral. Um, he really he deconstructs that and he and he kind of puts it back on its face, uh, and it's really really impactful. Uh, because all of us don't really realize how much we've been impacted by culture, uh, even in our language around business, and we we find ourselves justifying why we're in business and justifying our, our profits and our success. And he really he really flips that on its head. It's an excellent book, "Thou Shall Prosper" by uh, Daniel Lapin.
0: Um, he actually lives here in Baltimore.
1: <laughs> there we go. I've actually I've recommended that book so many times, and I've actually never met anybody that's even heard of him, which is fantastic. That's.
0: Um, what is a bucket list item for you?
1: Um, so I, uh, yeah, I don't know, actually, that's a really, that's a really good question. I,
0: I went through a period of
1: my life of doing lots of extreme things. So I checked a lot of those boxes, right?
0: So what's something that you did do?
1: The skydiving, the shark diving. I used to be, uh, so before kids, I was a, I was a, a deep shipwreck technical diver. So I would, I would dive deep shipwrecks all over the world, like 300, 400 feet deep, um, you know the Andrea Doria, U869, all, all these big famous wrecks and uh, after it's a, it's a bit of a risky sport the, the death rate the, the casualty rate is extremely high between that and the cave diving and when I started having kids I kind of set it aside but that was my big that was my big weird hobby that everybody would hear about and kind of be like wait what like what is this?
0: Cool well Mike great to meet you thank you for your time.
1: Thanks man it's been great to be on. Enjoyed watching the progress on LinkedIn.